our series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. Very excited to walk through the book of John as I get the honor to study this text and to bring the word and, and interpret and describe through the work of the Holy Spirit in me. What is John the Apostle writing? What is he saying? But we do believe that these words are actually the very words of God. Today we're going to tackle the second half to the end of the chapter 1 as the apostle known as John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, talks about Jesus being the Messiah and tells the narrative of Jesus calling individuals who are without a lot of earthly merit, honestly, to follow him, to be apprentices, to be disciples and students of his. I want each of us, as we walk through these specific verses, to wrestle with God's invitation to us to also follow Jesus and to be reminded consistently it's not about us, but it's about him. So let's start in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Last week, we talked at length about John the Baptist and John the Apostle, or the author of this book, talked about John the Baptist. And when John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this book, when he's talking about the name John, he's usually talking about John the Baptist. And today we see John the Baptist who had two disciples that were walking with him. And John points out, look, the Lamb of God, because Jesus to John is now someone that he can recognize as the sacrifice for mankind's sin. He is now visible to John, and he's in his proximity. John had disciples, or as we like to define disciple, disciplined pupil. And they were following him as a teacher. The Jewish culture put a lot of stock, a lot of credence, a lot of reverence into the scriptures, which, especially the first five books of the Old Testament as we read them, we know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And a student of a rabbi was known as a Talmud, say Talmud. They would learn from the rabbi and memorize these first five books of what we know as the Old Testament, and they would learn from it. They would study and wrestle what the text actually said. Rabbis would give Talmuds, or students, the opportunity to memorize and excel in the understanding of Scripture over time as they would follow the rabbi both physically and spiritually. But if one did not excel, the rabbi would let them go. You're fired. <laughs> and generally, young Jewish men then would go into some type of family business if they couldn't hang with a rabbi. They would go into fishing or they would go into woodworking or some other generally labor-intensive field. But if they did excel, if they continued to grow and to show growth in comprehension and oration and memorization and interpretation as the rabbi would teach them the text, he would call them to be more than just students, but he would call them to be disciples or disciplined pupils. These would be disciplined pupils of the rabbi, and in many traditions, disciples would actually be baptized in the name of the rabbi. But they wouldn't be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins like the Christian tradition. But they believed that their sacrificial system was what was going to cover them for their sins. And so they were baptized in the name of the rabbi, into the name of their teacher, as a proclamation that they were now following this teacher who had authority spiritually over their lives. 
So as these Talmids became disciples of a rabbi, they then would meet consistently in what was known as a yeshiva. Can you say yeshiva? Yeshiva. Which loosely translated, we'd kind of look at it as a classroom, where the rabbi would pair each of these disciples that were following him together, and they would be known as havers. I love this word. You ready? Haver. Haver. More spit. Haver which also loosely translated to a theological sparring partner where they would wrestle with what they were studying as the rabbi was teaching them. And in the Jewish culture, the Eastern culture, the why meant far more than the what. So in a sense, if you were to come home from school in our Western culture, it would be common for your parent to say, if you were in this culture, you probably said this to your kid, I know I have, what did you learn today? But in the Eastern or the Jewish context, it would be far more common for a parent to ask a disciple of a rabbi, one of their kids, what questions did you ask today? Because the why was far more important as it gets to the heart of the matters even more than the what. So the why really matters. And a form of the Socratic method tends to really help each other when it comes to to critical thinking about God's character exposed in the scriptures. So this is the context in which John the Baptist had disciples and pointed them to the Lamb of God who was right in front of them. So let's keep going. Verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Last week in great detail, we walked through the conversation where John the Baptist had with some church people, if you will, about who he was and what he was about. And he took every opportunity, if you remember this, to point these people to Jesus. And so yet again, we see John pointing to Jesus in humility that even his own disciples ought to follow Jesus, not him. If you're part of Church of the Valley, I want you to know that this church is not mine. This church is not yours. This church is Jesus's solely. And we want to take every opportunity to point what we do and everything that we do to Jesus. And so yet again, we see John the Baptist pointing people to Jesus. So let me say something that you might send me an email on, but that's okay. If you don't believe the Church of the Valley is a place that you can grow in, maybe because you're Maybe you've seen some changes and you don't really like it. Or maybe people that you were used to doing life with maybe aren't here. If you don't think this is a place that you can flourish, I want nothing more for you to flourish in your spiritual walk. And so if you've got to go to a place where you believe God's sending you to worship, go there. Because we don't want to stand in the way of your spiritual growth. And we want to make sure that the people that are here are here not because you've just always been here or not because you like the music or the teaching. We want people that are here that are going to focus on growing more into the likeness of Jesus because that's the point, church. Verse 38a. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Once again, I wish that I knew tone in scripture. You have these two disciples following Jesus now, and they're attempting to follow him physically, and Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Again, you and I don't get to hear the tone in the scripture, but I'm sure that this question that maybe some of us might be, we would kind of read into this as he was a little annoyed, I highly doubt that Jesus' response came off rude. 
Because Jesus knows everything. So you and I would probably turn around if we were Jesus in this moment, and we turn around if someone was creeping up on us and say, excuse me, or can I help you with something? But Jesus is not asking this question out of ignorance. He knows exactly what they want. He knows exactly what they need. But he's asking this question to expose something in these two men to help them get to the root of why they want to follow the Lamb of God. I wonder if this is a question that we all need to wrestle with when it comes to Jesus. Today, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, maybe you've been following him for decades, or maybe you just started to follow him, or maybe you're even trying to kick the tires of this Christian thing, and you're not sure you want to make him Lord of your life, I have a question from you from the scripture. What do you want? What is it that you want? Do you want someone to just make you happier? Do you want someone to just make you feel less lonely? Do you want fame and prestige? Do you want glory and honor for yourself? Do you want an easier life? Because these are reasons that some people come to Jesus. They think, man, if I come to Jesus, life will get easier. The problem with that's the Bible. Because when we start to read it, these people that decide to follow Jesus struggled with a whole bunch of stuff. Here's what I can guarantee, no matter what some prosperity preacher punk says, life doesn't get easier following Jesus. It gets clearer. It doesn't get easier, it gets clearer. What I mean is that by following Jesus, you are not alone, but you are following the light of the world, as we've talked about before, the light that illuminates your need for a savior, a light that exposes how you and I are missing it, the light that illuminates not only how sinful we are, but how much God loves us. Many in this life live without purpose. They're just breathing to die because they don't know that they were created on purpose by a God who knows them intimately and has given them good works, which he prepared in advance for them to do. Really, we exist to bring God glory because we are his and he is ours if we have trusted Jesus' work on our behalf through the death and resurrection. But let me get clear, following Jesus is God's purpose for each person's life, but not everyone follows him. Not everyone follows him, but when we truly follow him, we truly know him, okay? When we truly follow him, we truly know him. It is when we follow him that we start to truly understand our purpose. It is when we follow him that we truly start to grow more into the likeness of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So Christian, what do you want? Verse 38b, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I love John's disciples' response to this question of what do you want. They ask, where are you staying? Or another way to see this is, how do we get time with you, Jesus? How can we learn from you? How can we be near you? How can we be with you, Jesus? Shouldn't that be our response to this life? Jesus, how can we get with you? How can we be around you? How can you rub off on us? Jesus' response is so simple. He says in verse 39, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was the 10th hour. It was about four in the afternoon. Come and you will see. So simple, church. Come. 
So simple, but so powerful because he bids us to come to him. Let me, let me say it this way because I know who I'm talking to. He bids us to stop our agenda-driven life of the American dream or of pleasure or of trying to get ahead in our earthly life, but to simply come and see. Not just in a church building, but in a personal sense to make your life one that can be detoured by Jesus. Let me say that again, because I should have made that a note, because that's good, all right? You need to have a life that can be detoured by Jesus. So come, he says, and you will see. So they went with him, and it was about 4 p.m. Most commentators agree that it was the 10th hour, and the sun was about to set, so they were getting the opportunity to have a meal with him, to spend the night with him. To pick his brain, to recline at the table with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and to learn from the Master. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Andrew is Peter's brother, okay? (laughs) Which, to be honest, that's a pretty huge shadow that Andrew got. But he was the first to follow Jesus. Most believe that the other disciple between Andrew and this other disciple was John. John who? The disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this book. But yet again, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, chose to not bring attention to himself, but to Jesus. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew has this pretty big shadow cast over him. He doesn't realize it yet because he doesn't realize what's about to happen because his brother is Peter. And what a powerful testimony if you were the person who brought your brother Peter, probably your older brother, Peter, to Christ. If you were the one who introduces Peter to Jesus, the apostle Peter Petros, the one who preached at Pentecost, the one that became the spokesperson for all the disciples, the one who constantly stuck his foot in his mouth. Anybody? And one of the things that we, I think we forget is how passionate we all were when we first started to follow Jesus. Do you remember this? You, you didn't even realize you were exposed. You were just like, hey, nice to meet you. Jesus, hey, good to see you. Jesus, hey, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then the world started to squelch that passion in you. And yet you have Andrew, and the very first thing he does, he sees the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament had written about, the one he had studied about, the one that was coming, and he met him, and the first thing he did was go to church. No. He went and got his brother. Because his brother needed to know the Messiah. And so now, all of a sudden, he and Peter would get to recline at the table with Jesus, with the king, with King Jesus King. But here's the thing. We tend to focus more on church going rather than disciple making. You guys notice that? We tend to, hey, Sunday, got to get there for Sunday. And man, I'm about it. I don't want to preach to an empty room. But you know what? God didn't call us to go into all the world and just do church services. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And here's the thing. You and I do not recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God so we can keep him to ourselves. 
but so we can introduce others firsthand of this Jesus, of this Messiah, of the Lamb of God to other people. Ever wonder why once we become a Christian, God doesn't just beam us up, Scotty, to heaven? That was for you Trekkie people, all four of us. You ever wonder why once you became a Christian, once you've submitted to Jesus, it's not like, all right, come to me, and you get to spend eternity. You know why? Because once you know him, you get to grow in him, and you get to show him off. That's the life of a Christian. Once you know him, you get to grow in him, and you show him off. It is through the showing and growing that our knowing is made complete. That was almost a wrap. Mike, you like that? That was good. It is through the showing and growing that our knowing is made complete. And what I mean by that is it's as we start to tell others that he even becomes more real to us. Because he says that he'll be with us always till the very end of the age. But the start of that proclamation is he said, go and make disciples. So it is through the showing and growing that our knowing of him is made complete. Verse 42b. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. There's a different John. The only other John that the apostle John uses. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is where John uses not only John the Baptist, but John, Peter's dad. And Jesus says to Simon, you will be called Cephas or Peter or Petros, which means little pebble. What I love about this exchange with Jesus is that Jesus sees who Peter will be, and he calls him that. You guys notice that? Now, we know in Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, and he says, you are right, and you did not hear that from flesh and blood, but from my Father who is in heaven, and on this rock I will build my church. So John may be, possibly, Taking some liberty here. He's kind of fast-forwarding because I don't think that conversation's happened yet. But he knew what Peter was going to be called. Jesus knew what Peter was going to be called. And I wonder if at the time, if this exchange happened the way that John explained it, if he understood what renaming him meant. I was at a party last night and someone called someone else in the place the wrong name. And all of a sudden that person was like, yeah, that's not my name. Could you imagine Peter doing that to Jesus? Like correcting him? No, 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 it's Simon. What are you talking about? But Jesus saw what was to come with Peter. So here's my question for you, church. Have you ever stopped to think about God, what God wants to do with you? Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that God maybe wants to do even more than what he's doing with you now? You know, there are ministers in this room, there are pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers and leaders of households and elders and deacons and evangelists in this room. You just don't know it yet. And so God wants to do so much more than maybe you even realize using you. And maybe that's why God has prepared you the way that he has. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. What a beautiful statement. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Jesus called Philip to become an apostle. He called him to be one who would follow him. And Philip was from the same hometown as Peter and Andrew, even though Peter ended up having a home in Capernaum. 
But it shows that Jesus didn't go all over the place, did he? He didn't go, well, let me go to Rome, and let me, let me go to, uh, let me go to uh, Eastern Europe, and let me go here. And let, no, no, no. You know what he did? He walked around the context in which he was in, and he found people who weren't the most educated, who weren't the smartest, who weren't the pick of the litter, if you will. And he didn't find those with the most potential. He simply found those who were willing to follow. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we see Peter, Petros, Petros, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and they're traveling around Jerusalem, and they run into a man who could not walk, and we read that he could not walk since birth. He asked them for some money, and Peter looked right at him and told him, in the name of Jesus, walk. And guess what? He walked. And then all of a sudden, this man who had never walked before started to praise the name of Jesus because of the healing that he experienced near the temple. He started to tell others about what he had experienced when, Jesus, when this name of Jesus had healed him. And guess what? This started a bit of ruckus in this town. And the Sanhedrin, which was the gathering of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious lawmakers, started to hear about this miracle. And they decided to take Peter and John into custody because they were making too much of a, uh, of a ruckus. They attempted to get these apostles to shut up. They attempted to get these apostles to stop preaching Jesus and the resurrection, but Peter and John refused. But then we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that the Sanhedrin had a response to them. Here's what it said. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That these men had been with Jesus. See, I think more often than not, we exalt disciples, the disciples in the Bible, as these superhuman meta-superheroes who never did anything wrong and were highly educated and perfect-looking and without flaw. But that's just it. Jesus generally chose ordinary people who would do extraordinary things when dominated by the Holy Spirit. Every follower of Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit who has access to greater things than we could ever have imagined to do for the Lord as we seek and as we apply God's word to our lives. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip, the apostle, decided that after following Jesus, that he was, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that the entire Old Testament, or all the prophets and all the law had testified to, and that God's words actually testified to this specific person who was Jesus. And Philip's response was to testify to Nathaniel, to tell somebody, to tell someone about what he experienced, to not keep to himself this eternal truth that he had met the Messiah. I pray that this doesn't become like white noise because for those of you that have been here consistently, you know I'm serious about making sure others hear about Jesus. And I pray that this doesn't become a broken record. But how can you possibly meet 
recognize, experience, and know Jesus Christ and not want any and everyone around you to meet the Lamb of God. How is this even possible? It's not that introducing others to Jesus justifies you. That doesn't make you right. That doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't. But how is it logical to believe that if you truly met God, you would keep him to yourself? Is it because of culture? Is it because some people are offended by the fact that you have a belief system? What are the two things we don't talk about? Politics and religion. This is what culture has taught us to not do. And one of those I recommend. The other I don't. Don't tell me it's because you don't think you know enough. And I'm looking at you college kids, especially. Don't tell me it's because you, you, you aren't like an apostle who was technically unschooled. They were ordinary, but they had been with Jesus. So the only reason you would keep Jesus to yourself is because you really haven't been with him. Because you haven't really experienced or recognized him as the Christ. So look at Nathaniel's response. <laughs> Verse 46. Nazareth? Alviso? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Philip quotes Jesus. Come and see. What a great commentary on how Christianity is seen today. Considered so insignificant, considered so old school, so unnecessary, and yet we worship a God who lived, died, and rose again. Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus, a very insignificant town that really wasn't even on the map at the time. But yet the Messiah, he came from humble beginnings because he is not the Christ that you and I would create, is he? So Philip doesn't attempt to argue with Nathaniel. He doesn't attempt to apologetic all over him, okay? What does he do? He says, come, and you will see. We Christians need to be introducing people to Jesus through his word, through his people, and in submission to the Holy Spirit to actually speak up when the opportunities present themselves. And I promise you the opportunities are right in front of us, right now. If we look for them, we're going to find them, church. I promise you. In three weeks, we'll be celebrating Easter. Y'all know that, right? Like, this isn't a surprise. April 1st, it's not like a Fool's Day thing, right? This is one of the two dates that unchurched, ill-religious people are interested and even willing to come into a church building and hear about Jesus. Do not take for granted this season. That is such a free space on the bingo card of inviting people to church. I can promise you that your friends, if they come here, your family, if they come here, here's what I can promise you on Easter, but on any Sunday, they're going to hear about Jesus. They're going to hear about his life, his death, and his resurrection. And like Philip, we're going to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Come, and you will see. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This could mean a lot of things regarding Nathanael's character, but Jesus knew him before they actually met, not because he looked on his Facebook wall, but because he knew him. 
He created him. He knew his heart. He knew he was a Jew who was seeking and was not closed-minded to the possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah. Verse 48, how do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. This is a brief glimpse of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. You guys know that he knows everything, right? Like, but do you know that? Do you know that there's no sin that's hidden from him? Do you know that there's no motivation that is hidden from him? Not like he's a spooky big brother, but he is a God who, even though he knows your motivations, loves you anyway. What a great God. And this was a brief summary, if you will, as Jesus talks about Nathaniel's character, but he also revealed information that could only be known by Nathaniel himself. This is conjecture, but perhaps Nathaniel had some significant or outstanding experience under that tree, and Jesus was calling it out. He was, Nathaniel was open to recognize that Jesus was alluding to something that was special to him. And Jesus had the knowledge of this event that was not available to any ordinary man. Next week, we will study what most people call Jesus' first miracle at the wedding at Cana. But as far as supernatural understanding is concerned, this, this right here could be looked at technically as Jesus' first miracle because he knew Nathaniel, and this was supernatural. Verse 49, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That escalated really quickly, if you guys notice. He went from grumbling about Nazareth, this town that's unnecessary in a lot of people's mind, to meeting and recognizing Jesus as the Christ, because Jesus knew him. How much more do we expect of Jesus today to prove himself? How much more do we expect Jesus to show us who we are in order for us to believe in him? See, I don't want you to believe in him, church. I want you to believe him. Because he says he's the Messiah. And that means we get on our face spiritually. And we understand he is the Messiah. He is the one worthy of worship. Verse 50, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Jesus performed many other miracles. He showed his character. He showed his supremeness throughout his earthly ministry, as we will read through the book of John in particular. But he was headed towards the cross. He was headed towards the empty tomb, which would be the defining moment for history. Ironically, not only do we know that he knows us intimately as we read the scripture, and the scripture really reads us, but we live in post-resurrection society where the most important moment in history has already happened. And there is overwhelming evidence and logic to support the claim that Jesus actually did what he said that he did by rising from the, the grave. Verse 51, he then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus concludes with Nathanael this conversation by referring to Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, which I know Nathanael would know. 
where Jacob, who would later be known as Israel, had a dream where he saw a ladder and he saw angels going up this ladder and angels coming down this ladder. And Jesus was making the point that Jesus is the ladder, that he is the one that gives us our opportunity to go to God, that he came down the ladder and we get the opportunity to go up because of what Christ has accomplished. He gives us access to the Father. Jesus here is the first place he calls himself the Son of Man, which he uses something like 83 times in the Gospels, which is a designation that he wanted to use for himself consistently, and it was from the prophetic book in the Old Testament known as Daniel. But the title which Jesus used for himself was a reference not only to Christ's humility, but also to his glory, that the Messiah was coming. Here's the thing, church. COV, God is up to some amazing things in this place. These past few months in particular, there has been life change. Next week, we're going to have baptisms. Next week, we're going to celebrate the things that God has been doing here. People going from death to life, all because Jesus, Jesus willed it, all because he allowed us to be benefactors of his work. And my favorite thing to share when I'm connecting with other people that are in other churches and they're asking me how COV is going, my favorite thing to share is life change. My favorite thing to talk about is the fact that God is growing us more into his likeness, both corporately and personally, through the Holy Spirit doing the work of sanctification through us as we apply the word of God to our lives. People are coming to faith. Here's my favorite part, not because we're doing altar calls. People are coming to faith because people in this church are inviting people, come and see, and then they're following up with them after the service. People are coming to faith because there are faithful people in this church that maybe those people aren't ready to go to church yet, but they're sharing the gospel with these people. And they're telling him, here is what Christ, they're testifying to what Christ has done in their own lives. So I leave you with this question, church. What do you want? I believe Jesus is asking each of us that question right now. And ultimately, I wonder if our answer would be Jesus. To sit at his feet, to recline at the table with him, to adore and worship him personally and corporately. Worship team, you can come on up. This is like the shortest sermon I've ever done. <laughs> let, me give you a, uh, let me give you a brief update on the story I told you at the end of the service last week as I shared with you about how I'm getting to study with my nine-year-old, Lorelai, and I'm getting to tell her about Jesus. And, and she's had a relationship with Jesus, I believe, for about four years now, but she had never been baptized. And so we sat down last two weeks ago, and we talked about what baptism is, and she said she didn't think she knew enough, and so we talked through that, and she started to explain to me all these things that she did know, and I was sure for a fact she's ready and then this past Sunday, we met at my Pete's, and we sat down, and we started to talk. And I said, Lorelai, how do you feel about baptism? And she said, I want to do it. And I said, why? And she said, because I love Jesus, and I want to show him. I want to show others that I love Jesus. So if you ask Lorelai, what do you want? My sweet little nine-year-old would probably say Jesus. That's what I want. I want to sit at the table with him. 
I want to recline at the table with him. And so she wants to outwardly show what she believes inwardly through baptism. Not as salvation, because she knows that the water doesn't save her, but it is a symbol of showing that she has gone from death to life in Jesus Christ. That Christ is Lord of her life. And really, you know what it is? It is her willingness to not try to prove that she's saved, which I think a lot of people attempt to do, but it's a proclamation that she's ready to be a disciple of Jesus. And so that's my prayer for us. Maybe you're in this place and you were never baptized. Or maybe you were baptized, but you hadn't actually committed to Jesus when you did it. Let's talk. In front of you, there should be a card that gives you the opportunity to let us know not only that you were here, but maybe a prayer request, or maybe you want to share with us, hey, I've decided to follow this Jesus. I came and saw, and I want him. Or maybe you want to be baptized, or maybe you want to talk about baptism. Fill out that card. I have multiple conversations this week with people that are possibly going to get baptized next Sunday, and we are going to celebrate these people's proclamation of discipleship. And so we're going to take the offering after we do communion and Mike will explain more of that, but I just want to leave you with this question. What do you want? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we had to wake up this morning. Thank you that we have air in our lungs. Thank you that we have blood beating through our hearts or through our veins. God, I pray as we spend time worshiping you and in communion and giving of our offering that all of these would be opportunities to show you how important and supreme you are to our lives. God, I pray that we, if we're not there yet, if asked what do we want, that eventually our, our proclamation would simply be Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. We thank you for your text and that it's a lamp, a lamp unto our feet, and we pray that we would apply this to our lives, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.